0: We continue this morning in our verse-by-verse study of the epistle to the Hebrews near the end of the New Testament in your Bibles. The title for this message is Make Your Hope Sure, based on Hebrews 6, 9 through 12. Canada experienced its worst-ever mass shooting in Nova Scotia April 18th and 19th of this year. Twenty-two souls were lost. The shooter drove a replica police cruiser, wore an authentic RCMP uniform. He certainly was not who he presented himself to be. There are fake Christians, too. Persons who say that they are saved, but are not. Persons who, for a time, can fool some true Christians, but never, of course, fool Almighty God. Sometimes, these fake Christians even rise to the rank of teacher or preacher in certain churches. And that, of course, is extremely scary. The Lord Jesus Christ addressed This problem in his Sermon on the Mount, when he said in Matthew 7, 16 to 21, the following Jesus' words, You will know them, we must ask ourselves who. If we look back to verse 15 in the passage, we will see that he is referring to false prophets, not rank and file ordinary Christians, but those who teach Christians, those who have authority. In doctrine over Christians, Jesus said, You will know them, false teachers, by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, and the bad tree bears bad fruit. The good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them, that is false prophets, false teachers, by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, end of quote. You know, there is something observable which does prove a person to truly be a Christian. Do you know what that is? That's a steady and a godly lifestyle which is observed over a long period of time. In past sermons, we have already considered Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. And these, you'll recall, are verses of stern warning to apostates, to persons who are familiar with true doctrine familiar with Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, familiar with his resurrection from the dead, but who choose to walk away from those realities without personal and real salvation offered them in Jesus Christ. In a past sermon, the example of a Christian college's professor who changed jobs to take a faculty position in a secular university and then made it his mission in the classroom to tear down the faith of students he came to know to be born-again Christians. That man is an apostate. He came to the wedding altar, as it were, and left consciously unmarried to Christ. I'd like to give us a very quick review of verses 4 through 8 of chapter 6 in Hebrews. First thing I want to review with you is that apostates who leave the church never return to it, or they also never return to the salvation which they knew about In Jesus Christ. That's what is said in verse 6 of Hebrews 6. And then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. The second thing that we've talked about when considering apostates is that their true colors eventually emerge. And they emerge as they consciously, deliberately, visibly, knowingly, leave the assembly or the local church that they have been a part of as they've masqueraded. It says in Second John 2 and verse 19, they, that is the apostates, went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they have would remained with us, but they went out. In order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. The third point I would like to make by way of review is that the readers, the first readers of the book of Hebrews who apostatized, returned to Judaism, which they knew, returned to its temple and to its animal blood sacrifices and to its rituals, but they did so with a self-righteous expectation that they could earn through Judaism, righteousness for themselves and their own merit, their own efforts. We pointed out last time that the temple they gravitated back to in Jerusalem, just four years after the epistle to the Hebrews was given by the Holy Spirit, just four years later, that temple was leveled, destroyed, left in shambles and rubble by the Roman army at the will of the sovereign God of the universe. When we look at verses 4 through 8, of Hebrews 6, we see that they are pretty hopeless. (laughs) But when we look at verses 9 to 12, we see that they are wonderfully hopeful. And that is the passage, friends, that you will see in Scripture from the first chapter of the Bible in Genesis to the last chapter of the Bible in Revelation. And that is the pattern of God turning hopelessness to hopefulness. That is, in fact, the storyline of Scripture that the God of perfect love, the God of perfect mercy, the God of perfect grace can turn our hopelessness into his endless hopefulness. Such a God we know, such a God we trust, and such a God we serve. Going back to verses 4 to 8 in general terms, they are a warning. Let me illustrate to you a warning. A warning might be me saying, If you smoke, you can get incurable cancer and die. That would be a warning. Verses 9 to 12 follow a warning with a positive expectation. Verses 4 to 8 give a warning, but verses 9 to 12 give a positive expectation for those who are in on the warning. Let me illustrate a positive expectation. I could say, I don't expect that you will decide to smoke. And so the warning in my illustration is, if you smoke, you can get incurable cancer and die, but my positive expectation would be, but I don't expect you to decide to smoke. This is why verse 9 begins with the contrast of, the contrast of word but with the subject beloved. Look at verse 9, please. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that, are, that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. He's saying, Although I've been warning apostates, brethren, I expect better of you because you are truly saved. That's hope after hopelessness, that's positive expectation. After stern warning. Now, what is the better that was expected of the first readers of the epistle called Hebrews? And what remains to be the better that God expects for you and me who do know Christ as Savior? What is the better that is expected of us simply because we're saved? Verses 9 to 12 will tell us listen. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Verse 12, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so these verses have listed off what is the better which heaven expects from each of us who are truly saved. And what we're going to see is that There is no self improvement project for any Christian. No Christian uh, self improves just by pulling their bootstraps up tighter or gritting their teeth and trying to be more righteous in their own strength and smarts. There is no such thing as self improvement righteousness in any Christian's life. And so when you are complimented on something, maybe It's a service you render in Jesus' name to someone else. Or maybe it's something you do by way of ministry in this church. When you are complimented, because betterment and sanctification cannot happen in any of us as a self-improvement project, when you are complimented, a very suitable and biblical response would be, thank you, I am what I am by the grace of God. I am what I am by the grace of God. And so these five things that I have read with you in chapter 6, verses 9 through 12, these five better things that God expects of all of us who are saved, these five better things happen because we are in stride with the Holy Spirit. Because we are allowing him to overrule our old man or woman, to overrule our flesh, to overrule our propensity to just look out for number one. And these five betterments are expected of each born-again Christian by the Lord who saved us. Very quickly, these five better things that are expected are found in verses 7, 10, 11, and 12 of our passage. I'm going to overview the five, but only have time in this sermon to cover the first two of the five. The five better things that are expected of you if you are saved expected by God of you are these. Some useful things, according to verse 7. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation, useful, there it is, useful to those for whose sake it also is tilled, receives a blessing from God. So the first thing Kevin expects of you when you're saved is that you'll do useful things. The second better thing is work things. I see that in the first part of verse 10, please. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work. God expects better things of you if you are saved that you will work for him. Not be idle. Work. Work. The third better thing that heaven expects of everyone who is truly saved involves love, things of love. The second part of verse 10 For God is not unjust as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, etc. And so the fourth kind of better thing that is expected of all of us who are saved, I've called servant things. I see that in the last part of verse 10 having ministered, served, and still ministering, serving the saints. God expects that since we're saved, that there are certain better things that will characterize our lives. Useful things, work things, love things, servant things, and fifth in this passage, diligent things. See that with me in 11 and 12, will you? And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence, there it is, so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit promises. So better things are expected of every Christian by the one who saved us from sin. Useful things, work things, love things, servant things, and diligent things. Now, will you please remember with me, before I get into the first two of these things that I said I would, will you please remember that the original readers of the book of Hebrews were severely persecuted as converted and Jesus following Jews? They were completely cut off from family, the temple, Jobs, housing, possessions, and sometimes life free outside of jail. These first readers who turned to Christ in faith knew a lot about total rejection. Verses 32 to 34 tells us, refers to them and alludes to this rejection. Hebrews 10, 32 to 34. But remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. And so those first readers of the epistle we call Hebrews, they needed some high-octane encouragement. That was what they were facing. That was what they were living. And they needed high-octane encouragement. And these five better things that were expected of them from heaven were encouragement. And I hope and pray that it's encouragement to us who have also been saved. And heaven has the same expectations for these better things to be in our lives. So as I said, I'm only going to take up the first two better things of the five. And so the number one better thing that I want you to see in the text that comes simply because you know Jesus as Savior is that you are involved in useful things by heaven's measurement. Verse 7. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. Useful things should characterize your redeemed lives and mine. It says by way of illustration in verse 7 that a useful thing that's illustrative in this verse is good crops. (laughs) Good crops are useful for eating and nutrition and sustenance and the like. And just like there are good crops that are useful to farmers who farm them and reap them, there are good, useful things that God wants to use that we do. God wants our lives to be useful to him. Put another way, God wants our lives and their efforts to be tools with which he can work his glory. So let me ask you and me a simple question. Is your life as a Christian useful to Christ? When Jesus Christ looks down on your everyday goings-on and decisions and activities, does he deem your redeemed life to be useful to him? It ought to be. It's a better thing that Jesus expects of you and me simply because we are saved and we are his. The second better thing in the passage that is expected of us simply because we're saved is something I'm calling work things. And the first part of verse 10, listen for the word work. For God is not unjust as to forget your work. God sees it when we work. God remembers when we work. God is glad when we work. Our work can bring honor and glory to God. And it says in the verse, half verse, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work. He wants you to work. He wants me to work. Being useful to the Savior does not involve sitting around and doing nothing. Even if you're shut in at home as an elderly believer in Jesus, you can do something. You can do the work of praying. You can do the work of picking up your telephone and phoning someone else and praying with them on the phone or encouraging them with the promises of God. In Scripture, all of us are able to work while we have breath. And it is expected that we do. Being useful to Jesus Christ is not sitting around doing nothing, nor is it just taking selfies of ourselves and making ourselves the most important persons in the universe. Being useful to Jesus involves working, not being lazy. It involves working, not wasting God's time. Actually, most often, working in a useful way to God involves hard work. And can I really complain that it's too hard work knowing the work that Jesus did for me to go to the cross? Verse 10 is a verse that I write on personal thank you notes often. For God is not unjust as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. When someone, for Jesus' sake, works to make my ministry better or our family um, have us greater blessed or someone does anything in Jesus' name with love that, that I'm aware of that's benefited me and my family, in the thank you card which I express the specifics that I'm thankful for, I sign my name in Hebrews 6.10 because I want them to know the precious people who did those things, who worked hard in love for Christ and in love for me and my family and my ministry, that God is not unjust. He won't forget that work you've done. And he won't forget the work you've done in love for Jesus and love for others you've done the work for either. And two of the better things that Christ expects of us that he is saved from sin is that in the first place, we will be useful to him. And in the second place, we will be working for him. You say, what, is that? what could that look like? Well, may I just identify a few things? Praying through the prayer sheet, for example, takes concentration and discipline and work. Writing a sermon takes hours of study and of prayer. Work. Servant leading as an elder or a deacon in this fellowship takes sacrifice and commitment. Work. Raising godly children is demanding and exhausting. It's work. Staying happy and holy in a marriage takes communication and understanding and forgiveness. It's work. Putting someone ahead of yourself takes generosity and love. It's work. Sharing the gospel takes preparation and risk. Refusing to grumble at government constraints on your life during a pandemic is work to keep our attitudes in check, to honor God. God sees the work. God will reward the work. But don't lose sight of the fact that God expects the work. And so let me wrap this up with three things that I would like us to know. Number one, there is such a thing as a fake Christian. Don't be one. Number two, live out the better which is expected of you because of your salvation. Don't have a gap between what God expects you to be and what you are willing to be. Have no gap there. Live out the better that is expected of you. And three, know that two of the better things that are expected for all of us are being useful to God, and working for God. It's always dangerous to cite one believer that you've known in 33 years of ministry, but I want to do that. His name is Dan. He was in the second Canadian church that I had the privilege of pastoring. And Dan was not a young man, but he was a worker. I can remember having a pastoral care situation that was very potentially explosive and even dangerous to my health. And I picked up the phone and I asked Dan, would you come to such and such a place to be with me to minister the will of God, the love of God in a situation that's very explosive and potentially physically dangerous? He was right there. Right there. Or I think of the time when I was leaving that ministry in Canada to answer a call to minister as a pastor in Pennsylvania. We had loaded a pickup truck with some of our belongings, and we lashed it down with uh, straps and tarps, but it was a torrential rainstorm we were driving through in Ontario before we crossed the border, and the straps began to be not enough, and they were too loose, and I, the, it was on the edge of snow, and I couldn't quite get the ratchets to, to, to get the straps as tight as they need to be, so I phoned down. He was about 45 minutes away doing something that he needed to do. As soon as I called for help, he asked me the nature of my need. He went to the hardware store and bought new straps and new tarps. And there on the edge of an ice storm and a snowstorm on the edge of a highway, Dan got us in the place that we could go on to our journey to the new ministry in Pennsylvania. He's a worker. He's not afraid of work. And I could give you many other examples where Dan blessed my heart and the heart of our congregation because he's useful to God. A widow has a plumbing problem. Dan was there. He'd fix her plumbing. I could go on. He's a useful believer. He's a working believer. And I thank God for Dan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this call to better things that you expect for us, usefulness and hard work, we pray that we would be found doing those things in your strength, by your motivation, and for your glory. Lord, where we've fallen short on this, make us useful again. Make us laborious and hardworking again. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.